This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. I first learned about small change through a Facebook ad that grabbed my attention. As a preservationist, I wondered, is there a way to take this concept and deploy it to save historic places? Given the challenges of fundraising, I'm always looking for new innovations, especially around property redevelopment. My hope is that today's conversation sparks a dialogue about this concept and how preservationists might embrace crowdfunded investing as a way to save places that matter. Also, for this episode, a special legal disclaimer. Preservation Maryland and PreserveCast and its affiliates do not provide tax, legal, investment, or accounting advice. This material has been prepared for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide and should not be relied on for tax, legal, investment, or accounting advice. You should always consult your own tax, legal, and accounting advisors before engaging in any transaction. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're very excited to be joined by Eve Picker, who is the founder of Small Change, a real estate equity crowdfunding platform. We're going to learn all about what that means um, and dive into the implications for historic places and historic preservation on today's episode of PreserveCast. But before we get there and we start talking about crowdfunding and uh, real estate equity, um, Eve, you've had a really fascinating career. Your bio, which is in the show notes, um, is is there, and and you can kind of get a taste for all these fun things that you've done over the course of your career. What was the chain of events, I suppose, that led you to founding Small Change, which I'm sure is no small um, answer, but but how does one get into this? No, it isn't a small answer, but first of all, thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm really thrilled to be here. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, I think my resume probably looks weird and wonderful from the outside, but for me it was a... Um, natural progression of sorts. Um, I, I, I'm an architect by training and I have a master's in urban design. And when I came to Pittsburgh unexpectedly, I, I worked as an architect and an urban designer and then fell into community development and um, realized that sort of I'd found my, I'd found my calling. Um, I absolutely loved taking old buildings and renovating them and putting back them back into good use. And so um, I, I worked for the planning department for a while, but I also turned my attention to redeveloping buildings. And I decided to focus on neighborhoods that no one else was really thinking about, maybe naively, <laughs> um, you know, soft markets are pretty tough call when you come to doing a real real estate project. But I'd cut my teeth on nonprofit real estate projects, so it felt very comfortable to me. I wasn't interested in doing, you know, a deal and a greenfield just for the sake of doing a real estate deal. I was really interested in, you know, taking this um, down downtrodden city and the places in it and and picking away at small projects that that might make a difference in each of those neighborhoods and to the people who lived there. So those were the the types of projects I I chose, and I really uh, thoroughly enjoyed what I was doing. And it was very difficult work because um, the numbers were so very lean. And my, um, my performers always had a mix of public and private 
financing. Um, that was really the only way to get them done. Some people might suggest that they should have really been non-profit deals, but they became profitable after, you know, at least a decade of um, so very slow, patient progress. Um, and what happened really was a sequence of events that put me out of business. And that was, and it was over a period of time. And that was the Bush administration. They cut back on um, CBDG funds that flowed to the Urban Redevelopment Authority in Pittsburgh and lots of other urban redevelopment authorities like it. And those, they were very skillful at repurposing those CBDG funds um, as second deferred mortgages or matching facade grants or all those little bits of financing that you need to pull these really difficult projects together when the market isn't quite strong enough. Um, some of my projects had as many as different 12 different sources of, of financing like that. And that money just kind of dried up because, um, because the Urban Redevelopment Authority really had to remake itself and its own source of funds. So that was the first thing that happened. And then the second thing, of course, with the, the, the financial meltdown in the late 2000s, which affected many people in many different ways. And the way it affected me is that um, banks became stricter about the equity requirement in projects, they wanted more more equity. And I think they became a little more conservative about what they would lend as well. And, you know, before that, I'd, I'd worked with the Urban Redevelopment Authority and they brought banks to the table and they had a lower equity requirement if you worked in these uh, uh, underserved downtrodden neighbourhoods or on downtrodden buildings. And, um, and, and that just kind of disappeared. It, disappeared it felt like overnight but from you know I had I had a small business and we'd be looking at projects and we went from knowing that the urban redevelopment authority would be a partner in our projects to conversations with them where they said we don't have enough money we don't know what to finance and so that kind of you know the projects I was working on were not projects that you can easily turn to someone who has deep pockets and say invest in this and you'll get a good return because that wasn't clear when when we were building them they they were in neighborhoods that were really um in pretty bad shape and had lost a lot of pop population and really needed sort of nurturing to get them back to something economically viable so i relied on that urban redevelopment authority in the city and a few friends and family and my architect and develop and, and contractor. And, and that, equ that equation, that way of doing development just really pretty well disappeared for me. So um, I spent a few years just trying to stabilize my, my properties and with the intention of handing them over to a property manager, because I knew I wanted to do something else and I wasn't quite sure what it would be. Um, and, and during that period of time, someone came to me and started talking to me about the JOBS Act of 2012 and how the JOBS Act of 2012 um, was an opportunity to raise money from the crowd as real investment funds instead of just donations. And that I found really interesting. One of the things I'd learned in Pittsburgh and in my travels um, in the United States is that 
people love the cities they live in and they really they really want to support making them better uh, they they want to be invested they want to be involved and i really thought that this might be a tool to find equity or even debt for creative projects that make places better and so i embarked um, down the road of a crowdfunding platform, perhaps again naively. <laughs> um, it's been a really big project and a really big business to build, but it's certainly a very interesting one. So that's kind of, to me, it all makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 it's, it's a, you know, it's an, it's an interesting journey, and I think, um, you know, for someone who doesn't, and maybe this is a good place, and you kind of stopped at a good point there. Um, for someone who doesn't know anything about small change, um, or for someone, you know, for we have listeners not only all across the U.S. but all across the world, um, for someone who doesn't know about real estate investing and things like that, um, what is small change and and how does it work? Okay, well, small change is um, a um, a technology platform. It's a real estate crowdfunding platform. Um, that is uh, actually part of the financial um, technology or fintech industry. And its purpose is to connect investors with developers, with real estate developers. And we overlay um, onto that the idea of impact and mission. So we're really only interested in helping developers who have who are going to do something more than just build a building who are going to make a street better or they're going to do create a net zero product or they're going to renovate an old building or something that is giving back to the community so anyone who comes to our platform can invest as long as they're 18 years old and that is really the revolutionary piece of all of this before the 2012 Jobs Act, which was introduced by the Obama administration, really it wasn't possible for anyone but accredited investors to invest in real estate. And for those who don't know what an accredited investor is, that is someone who has a job that pays 200000 a year and has, and has had a job for three years, with, which pays at least $200,000 a year, or has net worth of a million dollars without their primary residence. And it's pretty shocking to me that only 3% of the population fits into that category. And then on top of that, you have to remember that for someone to invest in real estate prior to the Jobs Act, they could invest through a securities offering, but it would be a private one. They had to be an accredited investor and they really had to know a developer. So a very, very small portion of the country really had the ability or the knowledge or the connections to invest in real estate. And yet real estate is a really solid long-term investment that most people should consider in their portfolio. But the only way they can consider it really is by buying a house or a building and having all the headaches that go along with it. So these crowdfunding platforms that have emerged give people who want to invest in real estate without those headaches the opportunity to invest passively. So the Jobs Act um, 
introduced and cha- changed some securities laws. I'm not sure I want to bore your listeners with those, but essentially, no, we can we can skip those. But but yeah, yeah, I, I, and I, it, it's yeah, I think you're 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 headed in a good direction here. So keep going. <laughs> so a couple of the securities laws were already in place, but they didn't permit advertising. And so one of the really groundbreaking things that came out of that Jobs Act was the fact that they would be permitted that an issuer, someone raising money, would be permitted to advertise broadly to the general public as long as they followed the rules of the security offerings. Um, and then and then there was a third rule that the Jobs Act promulgated called regulation crowdfunding. And that was the one that is really the SEC's first attempt to democratize investment. It took them until mid-2016 to write and implement that rule. So it took a long time and it's only been available for a short time. But that rule permits anyone over the age of 18 to invest as long as they invest through a funding portal, which is an electronic um, crowdfunding platform like Small Change that manages all of the very burdensome rules and requirements of that rule. Uh, you know, if you go to if you go to invest on our platform, it might look pretty simple to you and it only takes 60 seconds to invest. But we're really responsible for making sure that the disclosure packet, that the educational materials, that all the correct notifications are made to investors, et cetera, et cetera. And, and we're surveilled and audited for that regularly. We're essentially almost like a mini broker dealer. So... So um, with the passing of that or with the implementation of that rule, there's a small industry emerging that really is really the beginning of the democratization of investment opportunities for it, everyone. It really is. Yeah, and it's really just stunning that we have such a thing in this supposedly sort of supposedly egalitarian landscape where you – you have to be an, an accredited or prior to this, you had to be this accredited investor um, of really significant means. And it, and it, it almost seems like in some ways it like stifles the free speech of someone to invest in things that they want to and to express themselves that way. It's just, it's stunning that it took that long <laughs> to, to overturn is, something but like it, that. It comes out of um, a real fear that, um, that unsophisticated investors um, are somehow going to be scammed. It, it hasn't happened, but there's a real there's a real um, fear and interest in protecting people who don't know anything about investing. And there's an assumption that if you have a lot of money, first of all, you might know more about investing, but you have money to burn. So if you lose some money, it's not going to hurt you as hard as someone who invests five hundred dollars because they love the idea and it's really it's really the difference between them and rent, you know, it, I mean, that's really the thinking behind it. So um, in March 15th this year, the, that rule is going to be expanded. So the the rule actually um, really limits how much non-accredited investors can invest. Anyone can invest $2,200 a year, but if you want to invest more than that, it's based on your net income and net worth. And there's a calculation that is made. And it's um, and even Warren Buffett can invest no more than 100000 a year under that rule. Well, on March 15th, the rules are going to be upgraded. And they'll permit much larger sums of money to be raised by developers and also larger amounts of money to be invested 
by non-accredited investors. And so I think we're going to see that little rule and its implications, you know, take hold in main streets and all sorts of places. The intent really was that for that rule to help support um, startup businesses that generally or, or minority businesses that generally look to credit cards as a way to start their business because we all know that venture capital typically goes to white men. So this was as a this was supposed to be an an equalizing tool that gave more people opportunity and I and I think it's working out that way but it's been hard to use because of the limits on non-accredited investors it takes a long time to raise money if you have to do it $500 at a time. Yeah. Well, I know that story is running a nonprofit. So Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, okay, so let's uh, let's talk through a project um, and how an investment might work. I mean, and this doesn't have to be super in depth, but just to kind of give people an idea of how this works. So, how much on average does an individual, you know, prepare, maybe need to be prepared to invest to get involved? So, if someone was listening and they're like, "This sounds cool, I want to go and invest," what does that look like? And then I'm I'm curious, you know, how how does the investment work, and how does it actually create? A return, like what? What is generating that return? Sure, I'm not permitted to talk about specifics about projects that are live right now. Yeah, I don't want a specific project. I I just want a a hypothetical project. And obviously, we're we we will have a disclaimer with this episode that we're not we're not providing tax advice, but we're um, we're just trying to talk about how this actually works. Well, I can give you specifics on past projects that have raised the funds, but um, again, as part of the democratization of investment, the SEC wants everyone to get information in the same place at the same time and have access to the developer there. And you can do all of that on small change.co. That's kind of the point, And that's why we're not allowed to talk about the terms of um, offerings off that platform. But I can tell you about the projects in general, and I can talk about um, offerings in the past. Um, so, you know, real estate's maybe a little bit more difficult in some ways than a business raise. Um, a very common way to get a return in real estate is through something called a waterfall where there are um, thresholds depending on how, how the, um, the project performs. And very typically a developer will first offer a preferred return that the investor will get before the developer gets anything. So pay the bank loans, pay all the operating expenses for a project, whatever cash is left over, First, there's a preferred return that goes to investors because they're being patient with their money. It's often 8% or something like that, okay? And then second, if there's more profit left over, that's when things get creative and it depends on the project. So let's say everyone gets their preferred return. Now there's an, there's more maybe there's more profit left over. Maybe by the third year the project has stabilized and it's kicking off more than that 8% preferred return. Well then typically um, a developer will take something called a sponsor promote. I hate these words, but but essentially they they say, okay, well, um, if there's more money, we're going to take a 30% share of that money just for putting this project together. That's our that's that's our fee. That's our profit margin. And the remaining 70% will be split pro rata between all the investors. That's a very common way 
to look at return in real estate. And that there might even be a third piece of this. Um, and that is when, let's say in year five or year seven, the building's doing really well and the developer wants to sell it. And there's going to be um, a financing event and there'll be, you know, maybe more capital in one hit, which would often be distributed in the same way, 30-70, but it might be distributed differently. It really depends on the project, but that is, that's a very common way for real estate projects to provide return. There are other ways. Sometimes it could just be a debt offering. Sometimes if it's a very difficult project, like an affordable housing project, they can't offer that much profit, so they try to offer more preferred return. I mean, you know, there's lots of ways to do it, but that's, you know, putting money into real estate is has to be somewhat patient because you need to wait until the building is really performing well, is full, is functioning to really kind of get the benefit of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And um, actually, is a, a really, a really great explanation of that. Um, I, um, I'm curious, how many projects have you done so far? How long has it been up and running? Um, we've, we've, we've done about 25. Um, we have... Uh, actually five open right now. We're busier than we've ever been. We, uh, as you can imagine, the beginning of last year was very, very quiet. Very quiet. (laughs) I thought we were going to go out of business quiet. Um, And then suddenly in the summer, the late summer, early fall, we got very busy and we've been, um, uh, we've been, we, we did manage to get five offerings live, which is quite a lot of work. It's really like, underwriting a project every time it's it's a fairly significant amount of work and they're and they're great offerings that i think all pretty high quality and they range from a um a portfolio of affordable um adus in portland oregon little manufactured um housing units uh that are going to be built in backyards to help the housing crisis to a a workforce housing developing in, in Newark by an all-black team. And they are planning to, uh, to set aside 10% of rent collected into savings accounts for each tenant and until they have enough for a down payment for a home. So they're very purposefully building generational wealth with that project as well as providing affordable housing. Um, there's another team also working on a black capital raise that they're um, purchasing um, community shopping shopping centers in neighborhoods that have a demographic that it's, is at least 50% um, black. And then and they are looking for you know looking at these investors as co-owners in the project. That's a pretty fabulous um, offering. It's I think the idea is pretty fabulous. I can't can't say whether any of these will work. I mean, they're always a risk. Everything's always a risk. But we, um, and so you should read all the documents and and understand what's going on. Um, there's another little building in Wynwood, Miami. That's a ground up, sort of a, a ten micro unit um, new building. And there's another completely different project in the in the Berkshires in Massachusetts, which um, in the Gilded Age um, had huge estates owned by very wealthy manufacturing barons. Okay, and this group has already purchased 
won such property and sold it at, at a profit and they are purchasing a second one. They plan to do this over and over again, purchasing it, renovating it, making it carbon neutral and renting it at um, really at, at prices that are better than competitive with a Holiday Inn. <laughs> Um, so you can have an event and spend a lot more money than a you know a, a a pretty minimal hotel in this very gorgeous estate. So they're all very different. They're all kind of doing something important. I think um, renovating a historic building um, and converting it to carbon neutral, creating wealth for people who've never had the opportunity before you know, creating affordable housing units, they're all really impactful projects in different ways. Well, I think that's a great place maybe to take a quick break and then come back, talk a little bit about specifically about this and historic preservation and then uh, make sure people know what's next for you and, and where to find all this. And we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. Hey, it's Nick here. And I want to remind you briefly that your support is what makes this podcast possible. To keep hearing important stories like this one, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, and follow along on social media at PreserveCast. You can also continue supporting the podcast with a donation at PreserveCast.org. PreserveCast is sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization that believes we all succeed when we all know more about our past. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Um, again, today we're excited to be joined by Eve Picker, who's the founder of Small Change, a real estate equity crowdfunding platform. And before we took our break, we were talking about exactly how this works, examples of things that they're working on, and um, how, how the investment strategy works, and how uh, a regulatory change sort of opened up um, this whole market. Um, I'm curious, you know, we have a lot of nonprofit um, leaders and um, executive directors and folks who listen to this podcast, um, many of whom are involved sort of in the more traditional preservation world of revolving funds. And, you know, you buy a building, you rehab it, you know, you get some, you know, you get some subsidy and then, you know, you sell it and whatever you're able to recoup, you bring back into the fund and you keep doing it. Could a nonprofit get involved in this? Is there a way for a nonprofit? And and have you done those in the past? Are yes, there ones that you could talk we about? We have. We've done, I think, at least three. I'm going to remember. But, yeah. So, you know, when you, when you do a project, a real estate project, you typically incorporate a brand new entity. And nonprofits do that too. You know, they incorporate an entity for that project. And then um, the... More often than not, the nonprofit entity will be the manager of the project entity. So, because the project entity is really a for-profit entity managed by a nonprofit, you can offer equity into that project. And we've done that three times now. Um, on our site, you can see uh, the Los Angeles project bungalow. Um, Bungalow Homes, which is a, a, a homeless housing project, which was built by a nonprofit, RNLA, in LA, um, and took them a long time to put it together. It's a great little project, eight, of, um, eight homeless housing units in perpetuity, and they raised money on small chains because they wanted the community to be involved. So it was a million-dollar project, and they raised $100,000, and it was actually one of the fastest raises we've ever done. 
Um, it's an award-winning project, but I think people really love the idea of being able to contribute to a, a homeless housing project that is is taking um, principles of iconic architecture. It's it is it's the first bungalow garden project built since I think at least in 50 years and um, it's using a brand new program that LA has put in place. So that's a nonprofit project. Um, another one in Chicago, Illinois, also same sort of structure. They're building something called innovation homes. They're taking uh, homes on the South side of Chicago that are typically um, three story walk up, four, six units, and they are purchasing them and renovating them and renting them to young people and teaching those young people leadership. So in exchange for for volunteering in the community in some significant way, each of those young people gets reduced rent, reduced market rent. And I think they already own quite a few houses. It's been going, it's been going pretty well. We helped them to buy three more. So, um, and uh, one, one of the first raises we did on the platform, which was kind of our test raise, was um, a tiny house um, that I, I had a pro- non-profit at the time that I managed, and we could not get an appraisal in the tri-state region. It was the first tiny house that was built on a foundation. It's a very long story, but we really needed to build it that way. And we couldn't get an appraisal that made any sense. So we raised $100,000 in debt on the platform um, pretty successfully and sold the house very quickly and gave everyone their money back. So we we have worked with nonprofits. There are a few little weird hiccups because of um, regulation crowdfunding's rules, but we're very familiar with them and can guide most nonprofits through them. So I'm I'm curious. It's interesting. So we've talked about nonprofits. We talk about how it works. We talk about um, types of projects, and you've you've mentioned some historic ones in there. Um, you know, given that this is a preservation podcast, and given your background and working with older buildings and things like that, are there are there barriers to rehab of historic buildings using this model, or is it is it pretty wide open for that? It just is a matter of seeing more projects do that. You know, I I would say. If you come to us, <laughs> we will make sure the barriers disappear. Um, it is, you know, raising money through securities is not simple, but we have worked really hard at streamlining the process because having been a small-scale developer myself, um, I understand um, how much work it is for a small developer to take on a creative and different project, one that perhaps hasn't been built before or one that's in in an underserved neighbourhood or that doesn't have a strong market. So I, I understand that. So we have put paperwork together that makes it very streamlined for developers to wor- work with us um, pretty purposefully. We require that developers have, ha- have at least one project under their belt. We, we have just discovered that Taking on a securities offering as well is just too much for a first first time developer, unless it's an unusual circumstance and they have a very strong team. But it, they have to have experience, or it just is it's just an, a lot of extra work for them. Um, so there's an experience level definitely that's needed. You know how to you have to know how to put a bank packet together. Essentially, you know you really need to be able to answer all of those sorts of questions and um, be able to present it clearly. Um, 
The biggest hiccup for nonprofits is actually a really odd one, and that's um, that the rule requires that um, all directors or any people having a say in the control of the project have to have a background report done. And it's a very particular background report. We go to a third party to do it. Um, it doesn't it it doesn't really look at you know minority offenses when you were a young teenager. It's really looking to make sure that you don't have um, serious securities offenses or will any way try to perpetrate perpetrate for fraud. I mean that's the point of it, right? But what happens when you have a nonprofit is you might have a large board and that gets a little bit cumbersome. If all all the members of the board are directors, then they all must have background reports. And so I would say that's the one tricky flaw for this particular rule that opens the door for everyone. Now, there are other rules that you can do raises under, and one of them is Regulation D. It only permits accredited investors, but it isn't, but because it only accredited investors uh, can invest, there are not nearly as many rules on the back end about who you need to run background reports on and all this information you have to gather. So that's a much easier offering which a nonprofit could use, but would only permit accredited investors in. And then there's a third rule called Regulation A, which I am dying to use as a community tool. It lets you raise up to $50 million a year and soon $75 million from all sorts of investors, any, anyone over the age of 18. But you have to it really functions best as a bigger loan fund. Um, and you have to at least have some funds to be able to get the securities paperwork together and get it approved by the SEC before before you start. You, you probably need $100,000 for that. But I think it, um, it could be a fantastic tool if you knew you could get, you know, a bank involved with CRA credits or foundation PRI funds at lower rates and then also open the door to people in the community. It could be an amazing tool. So there are things you can do, but they're all, each of these rules, you know, has a limit and has flaws. So it sounds like, you know, in terms of, uh, I was going to ask what's next for you in small change, but I think you just gave us a little preview of that, that there, there are some things coming along and, and there's also, I guess, just sort of the continued expansion of the regulatory environment. I mean, you mentioned new rulemaking and things like that. Um, is that, I mean, you know, as, as we kind of move to the conclusion here, obviously you can go to smallchange.co um, uh, and that's that .co and, and, and find it there and the link will be here in the show notes too. But um yeah, what is what is next? Is it sort of these these additional offerings and the expansion? We've really been busier than ever um, with new offerings, and we're trying to stay focused on high quality um, offerings and getting them live. So, absolutely, that's first and foremost, and there'll be a slew more in the next six months. Uh, we're talking to a lot of different people, um, but there but there are also other things I'd 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 love to tackle a reggae fund when the time is right with the right partner. Um, that hasn't happened yet. Um, we've also la launched an advisory service, small change advisors, not securities advisors, but um, but we'd like to tackle sort of larger projects that um, community changing projects, community projects that where the small change 
um, platform is really a tool in the centerpiece of something much bigger. So we're really excited that we're seeing a lot of minority developers coming to our site. We want to keep encouraging that. Um, I think, you know, the world of equity finance is not equal, not nearly equal. Um, and it, and that is true in banking as well. So if we can place some small part in equalizing that, that would make me very happy. Well, before we ask what's your favorite historic place or site, I probably wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask about your wonderful accent. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Australia. So um, very different place. <laughs> Very different not place. Not as much but... history, not as much history there as here. So moving to Pittsburgh, which was not intentional, but a, a very happy accent, a, a accident was um, really an eye-opening experience to me and really kind of transformed the way I think about cities. I, I actually came to the States to do a master's in urban design at Columbia and then landed in Pittsburgh probably at one of its darkest moments in time, because if you know anything about the history of the city, um, it really lost half of its population when the steel mills shut down and with flight to suburbs. And and um, I think in large part, it, it's remade itself over the last 30 years. And that's been an, you know, an amazing journey to see, um, really, truly amazing. And um, And I think, you know, I had an opportunity to do, real estate projects in the in the middle of, of some of those neighborhoods and really kind of play with those projects in a way that I could never have afforded to in my home city, that's for sure. Absolutely. So, but, you know, Pittsburgh is a gorgeous city with a ton of history and perhaps some of my favorite historical buildings are here. Um, it has a an amazingly compact and beautiful downtown uh, bounded by two rivers, actually three rivers. Um, so it's a, a really interesting little downtown and there's, there was a lot of wealth here, the Mellons um, and, and others who built these stunning buildings, which um, some of which have been underutilized. And so um, much of my, the portfolio built were small historic structures that, that um, that all were ex- extremely charming and beautiful in their own right. So, and owning owning some of those is is pretty wonderful. Well, that sets you up good for the next, the final question here. Your favorite historic site or place? Well, my favorite historic place is probably Istanbul because I just if you haven't been to the spice market in in Istanbul, you haven't lived. <laughs> I think I could move into the spice market and live there forever. It's a pretty gorgeous city. It's a stunningly beautiful historic city. I'm not sure I'd travel there today, but um, when I did, I was taken by surprise. Well, that is a a fun answer and a great answer. And this has been just a really eye-opening conversation. And I hope people listening um We'll take a look at the site, think a little bit about it and, and how it could impact the work in their community, whether it run through you or, or something similar. But just this idea of sort of the opening of this um, world of um, crowdfunding real estate investment and what that can mean for communities. Um, and so appreciate having you on today on PreserveCast. Well, thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to preservecast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. 
Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.